At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello everyone and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast. And today I'm delighted to have with me Mike Jay, arguably the man who knows more about the history of, of drugs and drug taking, probably than anyone in the world. Michael, it's great to have you on board. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's a real pleasure being with you, Dave. So, well, you and I met first around that remarkable, absolutely groundbreaking exhibition you put on at the Wellcome Trust in 2010 called High Society, which I, right. I thought was spectacular, both in terms of vision and content. And I'm going to come to that in a minute, but like with most of my guests, I like people to start a bit earlier than that, you know. And um, I'd be fascinated to know a bit more about your background, you know, what you started, what you did, what got you interested in this field, before we talk in more details about your your work and your books. Right. Well, I've always been uh, a freelance writer, and I spent, I guess, most of my 20s working in film and TV, and gradually crossed over to writing journalism and screenplays and then books. And drugs was one of the earliest subjects I wrote about. Back in the 90s, when, as you remember, nobody very much was was writing about it, it was a bit of a taboo nope. subject. I was also an early adopter of the internet, uh, so I wrote a bit about that, you know, back in no. the early 90s. And one of the very first spaces that got colonized on the internet was the sort of all the alt drugs news groups and bulletin boards and to me, that was so different from, you know, the outside world. I mean, the 90s was, you know, a huge kind of period of mass drug culture, but you wouldn't have known it from the mainstream media at no. the time, which was all kind of scare stories and stuff about crime and addiction. But mm. on the internet, everybody was talking about it and sharing stuff. So I got interested in writing about that. And then I just started getting more interested in where these drugs had all come from in the first place and who'd been the first people to take them and how they made their way into our culture. And at that time, the sort of academic history of drugs was quite a small field and it was very focused on, you know, drug control treaties and theories of addiction. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very interested in drug users or their experiences or why people took them or what happened when they did. So that became my field for quite early on, and it was great as a as a generalist. I don't have a specialist academic background, so I found it was a subject that let me kind of sort of cherry pick really all these fascinating bits of everything from anthropology to neuroscience to literature, and so I've stayed in the space ever since. And would it be fair to say that that Welcome Trust, the Welcome Museum um, display, was was your sort of you know where you sort of broke into public awareness, or, or were you there before? Yeah, I'd written um, two or three books about that early on. I wrote a, well, I edited a sort of anthology of drug writing for Penguin called Artificial Paradises. So I'd become kind of at that time when nobody much was writing about drugs. It became I became the drugs guy, 
and I was working at the Welcome on other projects anyway, and they said that they wanted to do something about drugs, but they weren't quite sure how to do it and asked me to do it. And I said, well, you know, I'd really like to do it, but just without all the health warnings and public messages, I'd really like to just treat it like any other subject, you know, like the way that the welcome looks at the intersection between uh, medicine and science and culture. But I should warn you that if I do that, it's going to come out looking very, very different from anything else that's out in the landscape there. And the welcome were actually very cool about that. And they said, fine, we're happy with that approach. Just do it that way. And so that's what I did. And I don't think I'd ever been able to do anything, you know, that's kind of sort of dispassionate and, you know, without the familiar drug propaganda, I think, you know, sort of TV and other parts of the media, that was the way you had to do it. So I'm very grateful to the welcome for being sort of non-judgmental and just treating it as a proper subject in its own right. Yeah, well, I mean, it was remarkable. I mean, it was remarkable in in the sense that you managed to get what is typically quite a conservative branch of of British funding and and history to do it. But I suppose it was because you'd already... You had a track record with them, but again, suggests that they were really quite relatively open-minded in those days. Because subsequently, I've approached them to to fund research on psychedelics, and they've been rather disinterested. But but maybe yeah. uh, maybe you're a, you're a bit more tactful than I am. Because I don't. No, I think at that time they were going through a phase of sort of lead curator there, Ken Arnold was was very interested in you know Henry Wilkham's collection, obviously, which was just this bizarre collection of strange 19th century stuff from around the world. And he was mm. fascinated by chambers of curiosity. And he was very up for stuff which didn't obey the rules of a sort of normal scientific exhibition or gallery show and was, you know, reached out and engaged people who wouldn't normally have thought of themselves as interested in medicine or science. So I think it was uh, it was what they wanted at that point. Since then, I think, you know, as you say, maybe not so much. I mean, now that lots of other people have, you know, started making the running with psychedelic research, maybe they don't see it as quite their, their field in the same way. But what proportion of that exhibition actually came from their own their own collection then i hadn't realized you dug deep into the into the, <laughs> into uh, the historical collection. Yeah. yeah as much as possible i mean i wanted to i mean that's so much of where the welcome trust's money came from so i wanted to include all the things they had there was a huge one of the huge selling medicines that borrows uh welcome medicines in the late 19th century early 20th century was these tablets called forced march which were uh, cocaine, <laughs> cocaine and coca tablets. Yeah. So cocaine and caffeine tablets. And they were huge and very big sellers. And that was a big reason why we were in the position to do that exhibition. So I made sure to include stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it must have been extremely public. Can you remember how many visitors you had? I, I, I can remember queuing to get into it. It was definitely... Uh... Must be one of the most popular ones they've ever had, wasn't it? Yeah, Maybe I think it. Popular. I think it was at the time. Yeah, I can't remember the visitors, but it was up in the hundreds of thousands. And as you say, mm. kind of queuing, and you know, so they had all their, they did all their surveys, and in all the boxes they had to tick were, you know, we want to get young people in, we want to get people who haven't been to the welcome before, you know, so it just ticked every box on that level for them, I think. And is the book still available? Yeah, it is. It's called High Society, and it's out from. Thames and Hudson here in the UK, and there's an American edition too, and a German edition. Oh, right. In the German one in German. Yeah, it is. So it was great to be able to do a book because, 
you know, I had all this beautiful visual material available, which uh, we'd never been able to afford in any other way. I had all the resources to the welcome and doing the book with Thames and Hudson was great because then I got a picture researcher who found, of course, there's quite a lot of stuff in the exhibitions that doesn't really work in books, you know, objects and things. But what you can have in much more in books is photography and so on. So, yeah, there's lots of great photos and other images in the book that weren't in the exhibition as well. And it was a great chance to just kind of lay out the, you know, the text and the the argument and the, as a kind of global introduction. Totally. And I absolutely recommend it. Uh, my copy's long been stolen from my office, but now, <laughs> I, didn't, now, it's, now I realize it's still available. I'll go and get another one. But I'll yeah. tell you the one thing I remember, I remember the history was fabulous and, you know, and the fact that you really did, your reach was totally global. But the one image that I actually took, I think I might took a photo either there or from the book and used as a slide was the remarkable visual image of the spend on the war of drugs. Do you remember Mm. that big blue, that big blue square? Yeah. (laughs) Which was more than a trillion dollars and and tucked away in the tiny corner was sort of treatment and everything else was about war and interdiction. I mean, it it was a staggering graphic. That was great. That was done by Information is Beautiful, who are a great outfit. They do uh, visual representations of statistics. They're great. So we got them in to do that for the exhibition. It was great. It was really good. I mean, I think images is a great way to approach this subject because the word drugs just conjures up so many different images in people's heads Mm. in ways that you can't really control but once you show images of people you know throughout history and in different cultures of the world using different drugs in different ways it just puts a human face to it yes and you carried on you mean you produce a book a year about don't you (laughs) (laughs) i've slowed down a bit (laughs) the last one i did was mescaline which we uh, spoke about on this podcast that was four years ago yeah they do take a while these days and this new one the last one you did is psychonauts right yes that's the one we're talking about now which is just now that's what i want that's what i wanted to introduce people to because i i've just finished reading it and uh, well it's fascinating i mean you've You've done a lot of research. I mean, I, I thought I knew quite a lot about drugs, but uh, you always <laughs> manage to find something on every page that, that educates me. And uh, so, share with the audience, you know, about the book and uh, and what set what put you on. You know, why did you decide to do a book about an overarching book? Because up till now, I will come back to them in a minute. Your books about mescaline and nitrous oxide, mm-hmm. which I, I love. But tell me about what was the drug? What was the thinking behind psychedelics? Well, you're right. I mean, part of it was publisher, Yale University Press, saying, let's, let, can we do something that's a kind of, you know, a big survey of the whole field? And I was trying to think of a way of doing that was original. And one of the things that I've collected for many, many years now is these uh, amazing descriptions of drug experiences by, you know, particularly from the 19th century, from scientists and doctors, as well as, you know, artists and philosophers. And I've been fascinated by this question of self-experiment because, of course, that's the way that science used to work. I mean, like most people, I, you know, grew up assuming that drugs had kind of emerged in the 1960s and that before that they'd always been banned or they hadn't been around. But, you know, in fact, the war on drugs, as we now call it, really is a 20th century phenomenon. It didn't really exist before that. And indeed, the very word drugs in the way that we're using it now didn't exist until the 20th century. Before that, it just meant, you know, all medications, you know, like it still does in 
in super drug or whatever. And then when you go back into the 19th century, then all these, you know, things that we now call drugs like, you know, cocaine and cannabis and heroin are all just there on the pharmacy shelves, along with all the other painkillers and stimulants and whatever else. And scientists who are investigating the mind and making fabulous breakthroughs at that time and the discovery of the unconscious, the beginning of psychology as a discipline, are obviously very interested in mind-altering drugs, drugs that change consciousness and change our perceptions and sensations. And, you know, up until the 20th century, if you were interested in that, then the obvious way of investigating them was to take them yourself and see what they did. And so I've sort of taken that as the center of this story and going back to a time that I think we've forgotten about when drugs, mind-altering drugs and consciousness expansion were much more mainstream than we remember. And all the big figures of that period, Sigmund Freud, William James, you know, and lots of others we've forgotten, are all taking them and writing about their experiences. Yes, I'm going to come back to those experiences and we're going to talk about nitrous oxide, we talk about cocaine. And, but, but you said forgotten about. I mean, I'm, do you really believe that? Do you think, or have, has there been an active, I suspect that partly from the war on drugs, but also prior to that, the, the beginning of the temperance movement in the 1800, late 1800s, I think, have we not tried to suppress rather than just forget knowledge about drugs and, the, and their potential utility in fields like philosophy? and and psychology is it do you think it's an act i sort of feel at least it's not just a passive process of forgetting but maybe i don't know what do you think yeah i mean you're absolutely right i think it's that you know that was what caused the eclipse of this practice was the temperance movement and anxieties about drugs including alcohol and lest we forget alcohol was the one that people were most worried about in many respects and you know one of the big problems with um you know, patent medicines that, uh, you know, which included lots of opium and morphine and cocaine was that they were, you know, very high percentage proof in alcohol. And that was uh, one of the things that people were, were really worried about. I think what happened is they became less important to science because science became more behaviorist and more about observable data. Mm. And so uh, introspection and subjectivity disappeared. So in the 19th century, it's, you know, when a scientist takes a drug that nobody's taken before and writes this amazing description of their experience, it doesn't just get published in scientific journals, it gets published in popular magazines. Everybody's fascinated. Then you get to the 20th century and people's drug experiences don't seem so interesting. Drugs have become more problematic I think one of the things that happened was uh, with the beginning of, of that same temperance era was, you know, there's a the era of public health and statistics and people started to define drug users as a as a group. And before that, you know, they do, you know, in diff- very different individual people had used different drugs for different reasons. But uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, drugs went very down market and a drug user was somebody who you know, the statistics told us had, on average, you know, more you know, chronic diseases, lower life expectancy. They often came from, uh, you know, sort of criminal or marginal areas of society or ethnic minorities. So the whole idea of drugs became more toxic and nobody wanted to identify with them. But again, do you think that was, 
a kind of the way I was obviously it was obviously a forced dichotomy between <laughs> drugs and alcohol. I mean, fueled, I guess, by the repeal of the US prohibition on alcohol mm. and the need for Anslinger and Co. to find other other employment for his people. But I often wondered whether I mean the drinks industry has been, I think, quite clever and powerful in in separating now the concept of drugs from alcohol and and using drugs as a way of uh, uh, attacks on drugs as a way of displacing people's attention from alcohol. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. And we certainly saw that in the 90s. I'm sure you remember that as well as I do when you started to get a huge boom in kind of MDMA and rave culture, which was when nobody needed the alcohol anymore, then the way the alcohol industry responded to that was to kind of produce ads that uh, made it look as if a pint of lager was the same as a couple of pills. Yes, that's right. The old dancing cat. That's right. Yeah. But But I think, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, a figure I sort of consider in this book is Aldous Huxley, who, of course, you know, gave us the world with the word psychedelic and doors of perception and so on. But he also gave us Brave New World. And you can see from that how drugs looked to, uh, you know, to progressive intellectual types like Huxley in the 1920s. They were all sort of pumped out by big pharma and they didn't Mm. say what they weren't labeled and they didn't say what was in them. And they were just regarded as uh, not as tools of enlightenment. They were the opposite. They were sedatives that were sort of pumped out by big business to keep the people quiet. And Huxley carried on, you know, believing that all the way up until, you know, until the 1950s and uh, until he, you know, took his... He was enlightened. (laughs) He was. That's right. Yeah. But also he, he, uh, you know, he still felt that drugs, you know, still conjured up this same picture in his mind as it always had done. And he was very, you know, wanted to say this isn't a drug. You know, this is, uh, we need a new word for it. And that's a large part of the reason, I think, why the word psychedelic was coined. At that time, there were a lot of people who were, you know, interested in mystical experiences and peak experiences. And, you know, people started to think it was good to stretch your, you know, yourself mentally and spiritually to the limit. And then when people realized that you could do that with drugs, then you had to uh, find another way of talking about them. So they fitted into this sort of new, more positive psychology. No, absolutely. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about it before, but in, in a way, Huxley's life is, a, is an example of uh, of eventually finding the right drug, put yeah. you on the right path. <laughs> yeah, and you write wonderfully well, both in both books, both in the Psychonauts and, and the and the Atmosphere of Heaven, the book about um, nitrous oxide, about the how under using drugs to understand the nature of the mind was something that was seen as being absolutely central to science. I mean, tell the listeners a bit about uh, Humphrey yeah, Davy. And, uh, I mean, because that is just, most people today would find it inconceivable that the president of the most important scientific organization at that time in the world, and today still one mm. of them, would be waxing lyrical about the Im- impact of, of laughing gas, which we're now about to criminalize the use of. I mean, elaborate, tell people about the, how it started with you. Yeah, well, Humphrey Davy is a great character to start about because, as you say, he went on to become president of the Royal Society and the, you know, great 
scientific hero of his of, of his generation, the sort of Isaac yeah. Newton of his day. But all this yes. started yes. when he was very young in Bristol, in your city, working on a project looking at the medical use of gases. And he was just synthesizing different gases and testing them. And one of the first ones he came across was nitrous oxide, which was believed at that time to be toxic, but nobody had really tried it. And so he had a little half of it and it didn't seem toxic and he had a bit more and started to feel a rather pleasant tingling and then he had a bit more and a bit more and you know suddenly he was having this amazing disembodied experience where he was floating around in this new dimension that was all composed of thoughts and ideas that he could connect in all kinds of new ways and when he came back down from that obviously he was he was fascinated and wanted to do it again and also wanted to do it with volunteers and he happened to have an amazing scene of people around him including the young romantic poets Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Robert Southey and he had this whole series of salons where he synthesized the gas he got James Watts the famous engineer to construct a sort of devices for inhaling and balloons and so on and he'd allow people to have a lungful of the gas on condition that Afterwards, they'd write a little paragraph about their experience. So when he produced his uh, his great tome, you know, which was the thing that launched him, it started with the chemistry. He explained how he'd synthesized nitrous oxide and how it was different from nitric oxide and so on. And then it went on to the physiology and animal experiments and how much of the blood is absorbed into the blood, how much of the gas is absorbed into the bloodstream. And then it finished with all these descriptions from people like Coleridge of what the experience was like and you know for him this was an essential part of the project because if you didn't understand its effects on consciousness you didn't have the whole picture and he certainly couldn't get that from white mice or rabbits so that human experiment and that subjective description the first person description to him was actually you know a central part of his uh, his science and so I think from that point on, of course, the study of drugs is still about pharmacy and chemistry. But from that point on, it also became about philosophy and poetry and capturing the experience. Yes, I, he set up this, uh, I don't know, would you call it a working group or a study group or an interest group mm -hmm. or, or a, a sub-theme of science, chemical philosophy, which I think is a, a truly brilliant title uh, for uh, for the effect of drugs on, on people. And it, it's... It's kind of disappointing that we have we've distorted science to a point where you know, most scientists will either either can't just declare what they've done, or and certainly the subjective experiences can't really be utilised in in terms of making sense of, uh, of yeah. what drugs do. Although uh, I think you know, if you look at someone, I mean, I'd sort of join the join the dots in the book between Humphrey Davy and Alexander Shulgin. I think it's fascinating that yeah. Uh, yeah. both of them were kind of inventing their own protocols mm. from scratch, and both of them came up uh, with very much the same thing. And I think because Alexander Shulgin wasn't trying to patent his drugs, he wasn't trying to license them, he didn't have to mm -hmm. jump through all the hoops of FDA approval. And if you read his big door-stopping books, they're exactly the same as Davis. They start with the chemistry, and then they have mm -hmm. what Shulgin calls subjective extensions and commentary, which is little bits of this is what it feels like on 60 milligrams, this is what it feels like mm -hmm. on 80 milligrams, and so on. So I think, you know, in a way, it must be the natural way to approach it since it's been, you know, developed independently 200 years apart by two great pioneers. 
Yeah, I suppose you're right. Absolutely. I guess what's happened is that getting funding for for the kind of studies that uh, Davy and Shulgin did is, is almost impossible. Yes, that's right. That most of the, almost all, you know, ninety nine percent of all the funding that's the last century that's really gone into to studying drugs, recreational drugs, has gone into proving they're dangerous. Yes, because people don't want to face. Yeah. Except, you know, much of the law is actually based on prejudice and, and, and some kind of you know moral position mm-hmm. so uh, so you know difficult for scientists I, I suspect these days scientists will actually probably be censored for self-experimentation i mean i know it's still legal but it is we've kind of lost i think that the a sense that actually mm-hmm. particularly thinking deeply about your own experience can actually move you or we move the, move the field on i mean because it wasn't well you you talk in, in your this uh, this new book about psychonauts. You look at the look at the use of cannabis. I mean, again, that that one, the, those chapters uh, on cannabis. Really, I, I hadn't realised quite how vastly influential it was in terms of end of the eighteenth, nineteenth century. Sort of thinking about about art in Paris and, and literature. It was it was seen as quite a powerful tool for opening the mind. You know, cre- for creativity as well, wasn't it? It was, and it was. This was in the time before it was really smoked, so it was mostly oral and mostly very large doses. So you know, the uh, usually the hashish experience, as it usually was in the nineteenth century, involved you know taking. I mean, it's hard to estimate, but probably two or three grams. You know, a very large dose. So well, you're kind of you know you can't move or speak for hours and you've got all these hallucinations and visions chasing themselves around your mind so in a way i think it's the psychedelic of the 19th century you know it's a long immersive sort of visionary experience do you think that the french took to it sort of in opposition to nitrous oxide was that was that was the uh, the english drug was it the french decided <laughs> to get a bit more mystical for maybe their north africa because i think there was some you, you describe in the book i forget their names now but some French psychonauts who were, who were sort of went around the world to work out the best way of using. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's because it kind of arrived in France because the places where it came from, Egypt particularly, but also Morocco, were part of the French colonial world. So they France encountered it first in Egypt when Napoleon went over there. But yeah, there's a, a figure I sort of find fascinating called uh, Jacques-Joseph Moreau, who was what we now called a psychiatrist, he was a doctor at a mental hospital outside Paris who encountered hashish in Egypt and became fascinated by it. And he was the first European to write, you know, really detailed, subjective descriptions of the effects of a large dose of it. And he was interested in giving it to his patients, and he did a bit. But, you know, in those times, there was kind of, there were sort of ethical problems with giving drugs experimentally to sick people it was actually self-experimentation was actually the ethical choice as well yes, as something yes, else indeed, indeed, and, yeah. and he believed that you know its real use was that doctors should be taking it because you know he was the kind of psychiatrist who liked to you know walk in his patient's shoes as far as he could mm-hmm. that's why he'd gone to Egypt in the first place and he was always frustrated that you couldn't accompany your patients over this threshold in mm. madness you just had to listen to them talking about it and so what he found fascinating about 
hashish was that it didn't send you mad. It produced what he called a mixed state. He compared it to dreaming while awake. He said, there's part of your part of your mind is immersed in these visions, but there's another part that always knows you've taken a drug. It's a rational observer. So you're split into two. You're the observer and the subject. And if doctors did this, then they could experience for themselves all these things like distortions of time and space and paranoid ideation, all the things that he experiences, and you know, which you can then understand your patients better. And then you can, as the drug wears off, you can just walk your way back into sanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the other interesting things that I didn't know, which is embarrassing, having written a book about cannabis, <laughs> is uh, the traditional use was actually in a way to not to be fixated by the acute effects, which we, we tend to focus on today, particularly because they come on immediately when you smoke. Mm-hmm. But getting, after a few hours, getting into that strange, sort of mind-numb state, which seemed to be where people wanted to go and, and, and then float through it for, for maybe hours and hours, you know, li- yeah. living in a, another world. I mean, I think that was something they called, kif, they called it. We still sometimes call it that. Right. was the Arabic word. And I think it's, that's interesting because it's just that there was no Western word for this state of mind and it was associated i think with very strong doses where you'd really kind of felt it was an ordeal you know by the time it started to wear off you were quite exhausted and then you just hit this marvelous zone of tranquility when you came back to normal and you had no wants or desires it was kind of you know like having climbed a mountain and just sitting at the top and enjoying the view yeah yeah absolutely yes you say you've broken through and you're in a Yes, you escape from the uh, the pressures, the tensions, and then you were in a kind of blissful state, yeah. transcendental state. Yeah, again, fascinating. So we're talking about the new book, Psychonauts, by Mike Jay, which I highly recommend you all read, particularly those of you who are interested in psychology. And it's difficult, as you, you know, every psychologist has, uh, has to learn about uh, about Freud. And one of the things that, of course, most people don't know is that Freud was also in fact, started off as a psychopharmacologist. And uh, mm-hmm. I often give a talk, well, often, but I have, I have given a talk called Was Freud Wrong to Give Up on Cocaine? Where I take the view that if he carried on work being a psychopharmacologist, he wouldn't have been a psychologist. But uh, I'm going to leave you mm-hmm. to tell them more about that because you might have a different view and you certainly know more about Freud's cocaine than I do. So tell yeah. us about it, Mike, and tell <laughs> us about remarkable uh, studies he did and uh, the way he tries to use it in treatment. That's a really interesting thought, Dave. I mean, I think most people don't really think about it because, you know, during the 20th century, Freud became such a huge name and cocaine became such a demonized drug that it's almost impossible to think back to this time when he was a young medical student and cocaine was a stimulant that nobody much knew about. But that's our story. I mean, he became interested in it, I think, because there was a real sort of mental health epidemic in the 19th century, which went under the diagnosis of neurasthenia, which was a kind of state of exhaustion of the nerves. I mean, we might use the word burnout today. and Post-COVID syndrome. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, a lot of, you know, I think a lot of things that we have now are very recognisable in the neurasthenia diagnosis, but 
the person who came up with it said the real problem is that we're all having to live too fast in this modern machine age. We're all being driven too hard, you know, by the demands of industry and we need, we just don't have the capacity for it. So uh, a lot of people, not just Freud, were looking for something that might increase energy and capacity and cognitive ability. So that was when Freud got interested in, in cocaine and he wrote, his first paper about it, it's a very beautifully written book. I'd spend a little bit of time in my book mm-hmm. unpicking the way that he mm-hmm. writes it because he's writing as a you know medical authority, but also in the first person talking about his experiences with it and you know stressing the euphoria and you know the great feelings that it gives you and how it works as an antidepressant as well as mm-hmm. being an energy booster. And he became quite a champion of it and the just at the point where the cocaine boom was taking off and the big pharmaceutical companies Merck in Germany and Park Davis in the US uh was starting to sell all kinds of cocaine preparations and they all they both asked Freud for uh, testimonies and you know so he was he was in the world that was just starting but we recognize today where on the one hand He's a medical expert, but on the other hand, he's kind of an advocate for a commercial pharmaceutical company. So that's always a, a tricky balancing act. And I think the other thing about, about his use of cocaine was that, you know, people now think Freud cocaine and just assume he must have been an addict or taken way too much mm. of it. And I think the problem was the opposite. He was a very sober, conscious, you know, health conscious person, and he only ever took cocaine in you know, it's got small doses of 50 milligrams. And he always said, if I had one, I never feel like another one. It just makes me feel slightly nauseous. So he assumed that was how everybody would take it. But then when people, particularly with the hypodermic needle, which was just Mm -hmm. becoming popular, when other people discovered you could actually take enormous amounts of cocaine and you could inject it, and people started developing very chaotic and dependent use of it very, very fast. And then all the fingers pointed back at Freud as the figure who'd advocated it. And it was at that point he kind of edged away from it and and dropped it. But I think think you're right. I think if if he'd proceeded... I think it might have taken him to some interesting directions. I think it already did because, you know, he was working on the idea that it wasn't just, you know, a direct central nervous stimulant that gave you more energy. It was actually because it was a euphorian, it unlocked something in the mind which allowed you to, you know, focus uh, for longer and Mm. concentrate harder. And so he was starting to develop this idea that things that happen in the mind can affect the body, which, of course, you know, what would, you know, 10 years later when he came up with his theory of hysteria, that's what it was all about. Now, that's a good thought that actually he he began to see the drugs, cocaine could open up his mind to what we were, I guess we'd now call the to the unconscious. Yeah. So I hadn't thought about that before now, but he was also using it as therapy, wasn't he? And he, and he did get rather into some trouble treating uh, one of his colleagues who was a heroin addict with cocaine. And yes, he did. Challenging to him. It was. No, he had a good friend, someone who sort of senior doctoral student, someone who he idolized, who was a morphine addict because they had terrible, terrible pain after surgery. And, He introduced him to cocaine and started to taper down his morphine and move him across to a cocaine regimen. And this seemed to go quite well at the beginning. And Freud wrote a piece in an American medical journal saying, I think cocaine could be terribly useful in treating morphine addiction, which has turned out to be, as you say, a real hostage to fortune. 
and that was part of the that was one of the claims that then attracted attention from people when I mean it's you know we talk about what does science say about this and that and you know this drug or that drug and it, it depends which bit of science you ask. I mean that's what's so fascinating <laughs> about looking at cocaine in the 1880s. Well I know you know you're, you're 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 starting to get the very first you know people running private mental health and nerve clinics saying you know outlining what we now call addiction but at the same time you know the same property is a great selling point for all the uh, pharmacists who are trying to sell cocaine as a sort of wonderful confidence booster energy giver you know so you've got sort of medical profession and the pharmaceutical profession get very, very divided on cocaine and it becomes harder and harder to speak across both sides of the aisle. And that's the position that Freud gets stuck in. Well, yes, uh, that's uh, I'd be really fascinating to know how, what he'd make of the, uh, of the psychedelic revolution that's kind of slowly been gathering momentum, certainly, mm. since, but also in more recent years. I, th- I think it's probably the first time that we've really got a strong sense that combination of of the mind-altering effects of a psychedelic and insights into the psychological processes together can actually add real value. I would hope he would be positive about it. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I'm sure, I mean, he would have been very attentive to the to the psychopharmacology, to your domain. You know, he was always had a sense already with cocaine that this was a field that was going to expand enormously. We were going to develop all these different chemical and pharmaceutical mm. tools for treating the mind and the body. But he also had a sense... Uh, which you get towards the end of his career that, you know, even if these things are enormously beneficial and have uh, tremendous potential, then we as human beings do kind of often take them off in the wrong direction and then blame them for uh, for our urges and our instincts and our ability to use them properly. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that's a pretty timely. It gets me on to the question that I you know, really have to ask you is, You've got this vast depth of knowledge and a literature spanning thousands of years. If you had, were in this interesting position that I was once advising the government, uh, what would you do? <laughs> what, what do you think are the lessons that we could sensibly bring to a, a government that might listen to well, how best to regulate folks? Well, my, my views are very similar to yours, Dave. You know, I've I've worked closely with Transform Drug Policy Foundation for many, many years now, for 20 years at least. Mm-hmm. And so I've been firmly, you know, arguing for evidence-based policies that reduce harm and you know, which becomes in the end, I think, just quite a technocratic business. You just, you know, you look at different substances and how, you know, their their effects at different doses and kind of what, you know different levels of availability and you know different forms of distribution how they impact on um harms and you know it's i mean i I would really want to just take all the moral and political dimensions out of it and just you know use evidence in the way that we do in creating any sort of good government policy and in terms of uh, transform and psychedelics incidentally i've just been working with them a little bit on a new guide which is coming out shortly on how to regulate psychedelics They've already done, as you know, cannabis and stimulants. So, oh, yes. oh. so the, the psychedelics guide should be with us all shortly. And yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I think. Well, that'll be interesting. Also, get, presumably Steve Rolls is involved. I'll get him uh, to come on the program, and he wants to put that in the public domain. Yeah, that would be great. 
So do you think reading reading Psychonauts, my sense was that that, that the sort of 1800s to 1850s, 1860s, that, that was probably the period when there was the most innovation and the most acceptance, or at least certainly in the intellectual world of drugs, and was if there was a golden age, would you think that would have been it when people were, weren't constrained? It was seen as something that, that actually was almost necessary for the, for the development of a, an intellectual's understanding of mind and other things. I mean, would, would, yeah. would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there was always a bit of disapproval attached to drugs. Mm-hmm. They always had a bit of a dodgy reputation. And even back in those days when people mentioned drugs, they were very careful not to encourage their use. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get this sometimes quite comically with, you know, very straight-laced doctors and scientists writing about their experiments and saying, well, of course, I wouldn't recommend a normal person to do this. But if you're a, yeah. a, tra- a trained observer like me, you know, who can uh, you know, separate, you know, separate out your, your intellect from whatever the drug might do to you, then it's then it's okay, but I think there was also just a huge sense of excitement about these mm-hmm. new tools that opened up mm-hmm. new parts of the mind, and there was a uh, you know from Humphrey Davy on. With I mean Humphrey Davy gets cited you know for decades all the way through the nineteenth century as great practice because it was a sort of scientific heroism. This is uh, you know he was prepared to you know take his uh, you know to put his his body and his mind on the line to take his experiment as far as it would go. And that's how, as a scientist, you make breakthroughs. You've got to be that committed. So there was a whole kind of heroic idea about uh, self-experiment in science. And I think it's really towards the end, like in the 1890s, when you start to get many more substances available, you know, after cocaine, and you have the first of what we'd call major psychedelics, peyote, appearing. So I think at that period, then both the positive and the negative aspects of drugs are ramped up enormously. You've got, you know, all these, you know, exciting breakthroughs in the mind, the idea of the unconscious and the subliminal mind being taken up by everybody and people fascinated by these regions of the mind that drugs allow you access to. But at the same time, they're being commercialized. You know, every week a new drug comes out that's in the pharmacy and it's cheaper than the last one and stronger than the last one. And people are starting to get this kind of sense that this is all getting a bit scary and out of control and nobody is really regulating this or supervising it. So I think both you know, the benefits and the hazards of drugs get amplified as you go on up until this point that we talked about in the early 20th century, when you get the sort of the temperance and the public health and the prohibition takes over. Because that, that rings quite a, a bell or it rings it's quite a accordance with it. There's a debate going on at present about psychedelics. And, and I think you've already pointed out that one of the challenges with cocaine was that when people started making it pure <laughs> and making vast amounts of it, the effect was rather different from certainly from when you would get you know chewing a chewing a coca leaf. And we've seen that, you know, in recent years with the development of super strong opiates and that. And mm-hmm. you know, there's now a debate in the psychedelic world, but you know, maybe maybe the plant is the better source than the than the synthetic. Do you have any opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, I think with coca and cocaine is a very good example. You know, there's never really been any sort of public health problems or harms with coca and coca chewing. And, you know, we're going yet another round at the UN in Vienna of trying to decouple sort of coca from the from cocaine and to get it, you know, out of the uh, drug control regime. And, you know, I've supported that 
for a very, very long time. I think it'd be great if kind of coca products were available. I think the regulators and people haven't really grasped, I think because people think of cannabis, you know, which is the same, you know, which is just a leaf, which is the strong drug. People don't appreciate that coca has a, quite a small amount of cocaine in and has, you know, other, you know, very useful minerals and vitamins yeah. in too. And it'd be great if it was more widely available because, you know, we're suffering from, you know, what's been called the iron law of prohibition, which is that eliminates all the weaker substances and only leaves the stronger ones. So with exactly. alcohol with alcohol prohibition, nobody was particularly worried about beer. It was spirits that everybody was worried oh, about. But because beer got prohibited as well, then, you know, why was any gangster going to smuggle a truck of beer when they could smuggle a truck of whiskey? So I think there's that. I think I think people will sort of head for the dose that they want. And obviously, if the only form in which it's available is the most potent, that's a harm maximization program. And I think with the with sort of plant versus pharmaceutical psychedelics, I don't think there's any necessary distinction in the experience. And I think that people can find the level of use that they want. I mean, I think, you know, you something like LSD that's enormously concentrated. You want to make sure that, you know, it's diluted or kind of dosed to a point where people can have some quite fine control over their dosage. But I think what one of the things that's more attractive about the plants as against the chemicals is that it takes the money out of it. That seems to me the problem yes. with uh, legalization is that unfortunately these things are valuable and worth a lot of money. So, you know, of course, criminals and unscrupulous entrepreneurs get in there. And one of the things about mushrooms, for example, is you can just you can just pick them or you can just grow them. And I think, you know, that's a healthy way for a legal market. To very do democratic. Is, yeah. yeah very, very. But yeah, I think uh, I'm not convinced that psychedelics and capitalism mix very well. Well, there's one last question I want to talk to you about because it came, I hadn't thought about it at all before until I read your book. But up till that, till reading the uh, the Psychonaut book, I was of the opinion that drugs and politics started off being something to do with the commercial, commercialization of pharmaceuticals and the, the banning of uh, things like opium, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the Hague Convention. And it was all it was about trying to create a market for the pharmaceutical industry, getting rid of the plant products. And then, of course, the the Vietnam War. You know, there was, was the attack on psychedelics was an, was an attack on anti-war protesters because psychedelics were changing the way people mm-hmm. thought about war and peace. But I love the, the discussion in your book about uh, how nitrous oxide might have helped people understand the writings of Hegel. And uh, <laughs> I thought that that or or Kant. And do you want to just share with the listeners that because I thought that's a that was definitely something that I was new to. It was new to me. Yeah, I mean, that's the reason that William James first tried nitrous oxide was he'd been uh, he'd been encouraged to do so by somebody he was corresponding with. He was William James was struggling with Hegel and how could two opposite things be true at the same time. And it all seemed very complicated until he took some nitrous oxide and then found himself in this space where, you know, all these opposites seemed to coexist. And I think so for him, it was a philosophical breakthrough, but it was also, I think, a real personal breakthrough because 
William James had never had a mystical experience and he'd always thought of himself as quite a cold, rational character. Mm. And he'd worried mm. that, I mean, particularly his father, who was a spiritualist, whose spiritual experiences were incredibly important to him. And William James could never quite get what that was all about. Mm. So mm. just having a mystical experience, was something, he suddenly felt that he could understand what that meant to other people and, you know, how seriously you had to take it. And he decided that, you know, this any experience is an experience and you can't you know discount certain types of experience just because they happen to be drug induced so the experience he had on nitrous oxide which resolved all these problems about hegel and you know the sort of absolute and contradictions you know even if that was a drug induced experience it was one that had a real impact on his life and really directed his career and was as valid as any other experience well that is a, a wonderful point to which to conclude this but finally what's your next book or do you have a plan do you know ah uh, good question dave i have well i have a sort of short and medium term plans which is all the assignments that pile up while you're writing a book and when you're finally done with it you get down <laughs> I know that. You, you get down to them so that's my my short term plan is to do all those things that I've committed to. But part of the reason I committed to them is because I suspected there might be some really interesting material in there. So a new book may emerge from my short-term assignments. Who's it? We'll see. I'm sure it will, and I hope it does. And come back and tell us about it. Thanks Good again, on. Mike. And to remind everyone, it's Book Psychonauts is for anyone who's interested in drugs, the mind, psychology, pharmacology, and the history of science, really. It's a wonderful book. Thanks awesome. so much, Michael. Thank you, David. Real pleasure to talk to you.